Hello, and welcome to the 80s Movie Podcast. I am your host, Edward Havens, publisher and editor of FilmJerk.com. Thank you for listening today. If you like what you hear and you haven't done so already, please make sure to rate and review the show on your favorite podcatching source. While a good review and rating won't increase our chances of being found or being a featured podcast on a podcatcher like Apple Podcasts or Spotify, it will potentially help increase the odds of someone who does find the show for the first time thinking that clicking play will be a good time investment for them. And it's something you can even do while you're listening to this episode. On this episode, we return to one of our favorite templates, a look back at one of the plethora of movie distributors from the 1970s and 1980s that is almost completely forgotten today. American Cinema Releasing A division of American Communications Industries, American Cinema Releasing would be responsible for resurrecting one of the staples of independent film distribution. But we'll get there in a moment. The company would begin in 1975 as American Financial Resources, a film financing company run by 31-year-old Michael Leone out of a bank building in Torrance, California. He chose the location for its vicinity to the airport, which made it easy for investors to fly in and out of the area, and a number of their projects over the years would be directly financed as a tax-shelter film. What this means is that, in the 1970s and 1980s, Someone looking to stash away some money to protect it from the IRS could directly invest that money into a specific movie or a series of movies. If you go back and look at the credits for an 80s movie like The Journey of Natty Gann or Down and Out in Beverly Hills or Adventures in Babysitting, you'll notice a credit for an entity called Silver Screen Partners. The Silver Screen Partners Limited Partnership was organized by a New York film investment broker named Robert W. Betts to help his clients protect their money by funding movies for HBO in 1982. Through the stock brokerage firm E.F. Hutton, 13,000 people would invest $83 million to help produce several movies, including Heaven Help Us and The Hitcher. The partnership would pay for a movie's production costs and would share in the gross dollars in all markets from theaters to television. What made a limited partnership like this popular was that the partners would receive their returns before the production company could defray any of their expenses. So even if the film in question would be a bomb at the box office and have no post-theatrical life, the investors would at least get some of their money back. Although most of the movies from the first silver screen partnership were not huge hits, the partnership would be so popular with Betts' clients that he would create three more silver screen partnerships for Disney. Between 1985 and 1992, those partnerships would raise more than half a billion dollars for the production of 73 films, including Three Men and a Baby, Good Morning Vietnam, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Dead Poets Society, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, The Little Mermaid, Pretty Woman, Dick Tracy, and Beauty and the Beast. Combined, those 73 films would gross more than $4 billion worldwide. Michael Leone wouldn't have access to that kind of money, and he wouldn't finance any movies like those. The first movie he would finance through his limited partnership, the American Cinema Group Motion Picture Investment Fund, was a documentary called The Late Great Planet Earth. Narrated by Orson Welles, the film prophesied that events mentioned in the Bible 
illustrated how civilization was heading for a doomsday. Based on a 1970 bestseller by professional Bible prophecy teacher Hal Lindsey, the movie would be a minor phenomenon when it was released in the theaters in January of 1978, selling $19.5 million worth of tickets against an $11 million budget. But most critics would rightfully point out how absurdly general these prophecies were. The promoters of the film weren't so in general, though. Don't make plans for 1985 before seeing this movie, the ads warned potential viewers. The success of the late great planet Earth convinced Leone that the big money was in distribution. And luckily for him, he would have a few other movies in production that would help that prophecy come true, at least in the short term. One of the people Michael Leone had gotten to know over the years was Carlos Ray Norris, who operated a chain of popular karate schools around Los Angeles, including one on Hawthorne Boulevard, just around the corner from Leone's office, next to the Torrance Airport. Norris had a celebrity clientele at his schools that included Steve McQueen, Bob Barker, Priscilla Presley, and several members of the Osmond family. Maybe that's why Leone would listen to Carlos, better known by his nickname Chuck, when the karate guy pitched him an idea for his own movie, which had already been rejected by every other studio and producer in town. Why will this movie make money, Leone would ask Norris. Because there are four million karate people in America, Norris would tell him. And even if only half of them go to this movie, that's a $6 million gross. Make the movie for a million and we'll all make money. Within six months, Chuck Norris was on the set of the film that he still considers to this day to be his breakthrough. And it's not like Chuck hadn't acted before. In 1972, he was Bruce Lee's nemesis in Return of the Dragon. And he had been the star of the 1977 film Breaker Breaker, which would be a minor hit itself. Leone would pay Norris significantly more than the $5,000 he got for Breaker Breaker, and Norris leapt at the chance to prove that he could be a successful action star. Although he would not receive a story by credit, Norris has claimed that he was the one who came up with the plotline for Good Guys Wear Black, along with one of his karate school students, and it's the type of jingoistic pablum that would become Norris's stock in trade. In 1973, an American senator, makes a deal with a North Vietnamese negotiator in the hopes of ending the long-standing Vietnam conflict. The North Vietnamese will release a certain group of key CIA prisoners of war, and in return, the Americans will set up a group of elite CIA assassins known as the Black Tigers. How that is supposed to end a decade-plus conflict is anyone's guess, but both sides sign the treaty and the U.S. sends the Black Tigers into the jungles of Vietnam having been told that they were on a mission to rescue a group of American POWs. Most of the squad is killed, but the leader of the team, Major John T. Booker, survives the attack, along with four others who were smart enough to stick with Booker. Five years later, Booker is now a political science teacher at UCLA, who lectures his students about how the U.S. never should have been involved in Vietnam. During one class, a plucky female reporter starts to ask Booker a series of questions about the mission that almost got him killed, as all of the other members of the group who survived have started to be killed off one by one. Along with the help of the reporter, Booker finds himself dealing with aspects of his past that he is not ready to deal with yet. 
Norris had a specific person in mind when he was figuring out the direction of his acting career. Clint Eastwood. In fact, it was Eastwood's role as Dirty Harry Callahan that Norris wanted to emulate in Good Guys Wear Black. And he and Michael Leone would go so far as to hire Ted Post, who had directed the second Dirty Harry movie, Magnum Force, as well as the Eastwood Western Hang'em High to direct here. They would also assemble a fairly decent supporting cast for Norris to work with, including Dana Andrews, Jim Backus, Ann Archer, James Franciscus, and soon Tech O, along with Norris's younger brother Aaron, who would also become the film's martial arts choreographer. Production on the $1.1 million film would begin in Los Angeles and at the Squaw Valley Ski Resort outside Lake Tahoe on April 25, 1977, and would last for eight weeks. Originally, Michael Leone did not plan on releasing Good Guys Wear Black himself. He was certain he would be able to sell the completed film to a more established distributor the way he had sold the Ted Post-directed Go Tell the Spartans, starring Burt Lancaster, to Avco Embassy Pictures. But once the film was locked in early 1978, the producer would be rejected by everyone the same way everyone rejected Chuck Norris and the script for Good Guys Wear Black when Norris was circulating it around town two years earlier. What Leone would decide to do was to revive a distribution method that a number of other independent distributors would implement in similar situations with varying results. We've talked about the concept of four-walling on the show before, but a quick primer for those of you who haven't heard the term before, to four-wall a theater would be literally buying the four walls of the theater from the operator for a certain amount of time. The owner of the theater gets a guaranteed amount of money regardless of whether the film does great business or bombs, and the distributor would get 100% of the ticket sales instead of a rental fee that, for an independent distributor with a lack of titles in the pipeline, might be as low as 55%. Usually, the cost of the four-wall rental would be what the theater calls the nut, which is how much it costs to operate the theater for a week. So if you were an independent distributor looking to four-wall their movie in New York City in early June 1978, one could four-wall the 1,546-seat Astor Plaza Theater in Times Square for around $17,500 for a week, or the 568-seat Murray Hill Theater in the Gramercy neighborhood on the east side for $7,400. But Leone wasn't ready to open in New York City or Los Angeles just yet, but he was ready to take a chance in Denver. Leone would four-wall six theaters in and around the Mile High City, and the film would gross $65,000 in its first three days. The following week, Leone would four-wall 61 theaters in and around the greater Chicago metropolitan area, and despite blistering reviews from the Windy City critics, the film would gross $450,000 in its first three days. But those six theaters in Denver would be done after one week. Not because the film wasn't doing well, but because there were other movies like Grease, Jaws 2, and Damien the Omen 2 that promised bigger grosses for the theaters. By its second week in Chicago, Good Guys Wear Black would shed 27 theaters, but the 34 that Leone did keep would gross a cool $175,000, and then he would pull the film out of Chicago. 
and this would be Leone's M.O. for the remainder of the summer. Take a handful of prints, move them from market to market, four-wall theaters for only as long as the film was still making him a profit from the ticket sales, and then pull the film before the grosses fell below the cost of four-walling the theaters. So what was the secret to their success? It was Chuck Norris. Between June 1978, when the film opened in Denver, and June 1979, when the film finally opened in New York City, Chuck Norris would spend most of those 13 months on the road promoting the movie, city by city, doing local interviews with any newspaper columnist or television reporter who would speak to him. For those in smaller towns like Charleston, South Carolina, or Boise, Idaho, who were not accustomed to movie stars coming to their town to promote the movies, the chance to interview a movie star in their hometown was irresistible. Norris himself claims that he did more than 2,000 interviews in that 13-month period and says he had to be hospitalized with a case of laryngitis. And in the end, Good Guys Wear Black would gross $18.3 million and put Chuck Norris squarely on the path to stardom. And about the only time Norris wasn't on the road promoting Good Guys Wear Black was when he was working on his next movie. A force of one would find Norris as karate champion Matt Logan, who was recruited by the local police department after a team of undercover narcotics officers are targeted by a mysterious serial killer. Like with Good Guys Wear Black, a force of one would team Norris with an alluring co-star, this time the ravishing Jennifer O'Neill from the summer of 1942, who plays the last surviving member of the narcotics team and helps Matt Logan discover a traitor within the force, is behind the killings. The film would also star Clue Gulliger, Superfly himself Ron O'Neill, James Whitmore Jr., and Pepe Serna. The $2 million movie would shoot in and around the San Diego area, near where Michael Leone had a home in Cardiff-by-the-Sea, between December 11, 1978 and January 31, 1979. As soon as shooting was completed, Norris was back on the road, promoting Good Guys Were Black. Wanting to strike while the Chuck Norris iron was still hot, director Paul Aaron, producer Michael Leone, and the post-production team would rush the film to completion, opening it on 16 screens in Norfolk, North Carolina, on May 18, 1979, less than three and a half months after the end of shooting, even as Good Guys Wear Black was still opening in cities like Buffalo, Minneapolis, St. Louis, and New York City. The film would do great business with more than $158,000 in ticket sales in the first 10 days. The following week, they would add 15 theaters in Denver and two in Colorado Springs, where the film would gross an additional $166,000 during the four-day Memorial Holiday weekend, even while films like Alien were tearing up the box office charts. Once again, American releasing would four-wall all the theaters and would follow the same general release pattern as Good Guys Wear Black, jumping in and out of smaller markets for a couple of weeks throughout the summer and fall and winter, before building up to major releases in New York City Los Angeles, and Chicago the following spring, nearly a year after their first playdates. Chicago would finally get the film on February 1st, 1980, where it would gross $400,000 from 54 theaters. 
It would open in New York on February 28th, where it would gross a half million dollars from 96 theaters, and in Los Angeles on March 7th, where it would pull in $223,000 from 22 theaters. When it was all played out, A Force of One would gross $20.2 million. But American cinema wasn't only in the Chuck Norris business. While they were busy putting Good Guys Wear Black to bed and getting A Force of One out to theaters, there was another film they would open. Eric Carson's Dirt was a documentary about various off-road competitions that had been happening throughout the United States and Baja, California, between 1976 and 1978. In an ad in the June 6, 1979 issue of Variety that touted A Force of One's early box office success in Norfolk and Denver, they would also note that Dirt had already grossed more than $3.2 million in four weeks, while only having played in 15% of the U.S. markets. But one of the major problems with Four Walls is that a company is not obligated to release box office numbers if they don't want to. So sometimes it's hard to track a movie like Dirt as it moved from city to city when the numbers weren't always reported, or even where it might have opened. The best estimate of a final gross, or even initial release time frame, comes from a 1979-1980 fiscal year report from American Cinema to its investors that was released in the fall of 1980, which says the film had grossed $9.2 million since its March 1979 theatrical debut. American Cinema's last movie, the 1970s, and technically their first film of the 1980s, was the horror film Silent Scream. The film follows Scotty Parker, a college student who, needing a place to stay before she starts her fall semester at school, finds a room in a hilltop Victorian mansion overlooking the Pacific Ocean, where a homicidal killer is on the loose. The cast is fairly decent, including movie tough guy Cameron Mitchell and comedian Avery Schreiber, as two detectives trying to find the killer, Yvonne DiCarlo from The Munsters as the woman who runs the boarding house, and Barbara Steele, the English actress who made her name in horror films like Mario Bava's Black Sunday and Roger Corman's The Pit and the Pendulum, as a mysterious woman connected to the murders. But many of them were not a part of the film originally. Writer-director Denny Harris shot the film around Los Angeles in September and October 1977, but as he assembled the film in post-production, he wasn't happy with how the film was coming together. He would make a plea with the producers to allow him time to rewrite the script and reshoot parts of the movie. Harris would hire the writing team of Ken and Jim Wheat to punch up the already shot script, and he would replace most of the unknown actors from the initial shoot with better-known names like DiCarlo, Mitchell, and Steele. He would return back to the streets of Los Angeles in the summer of 1978, where his reshoots would end up becoming 85% of the final film. Now, remember, this was all before the release of John Carpenter's Halloween, so who knows what would have happened had Harris not essentially remade his film and got it out into theaters before Carpenter. This time out, though, Harris would spend a lot of time getting the film just right. Silent Scream would first play at the Tulare Square Theater in Tulare, California, about 160 miles north of Hollywood, on Wednesday, November 14, 1979, 
as the B title on a double feature with Paramount Pictures' Bloodline, starring Audrey Hepburn, Ben Gazzara, and James Mason, which had opened in theaters back in June. Two days later, on November 16th, it would open on three screens in Honolulu. The B title of a double feature with Good Guys Wear Black, which was returning for a second go-round in Hawaiian theaters. These were considered short test runs, and no grosses would be reported. On Friday, November 23rd, American Cinema would give Silent Scream its first official playdates, 15 screens in Fresno, California and Las Vegas, Nevada, where it would gross $58,800 in three days. The film would finally get a wider release on January 18, 1980, when it would open on 131 screens in Los Angeles, San Diego, and San Francisco. And as the first slasher film of the 1980s, it would become a decent hit, grossing $1.675 million in its first seven days. That would put it in sixth place at the box office that week, while only playing in a quarter of the theaters that Kramer vs. Kramer, the number one film of the week, was playing in. Two weeks later, most of those California playdates were over, and the prints were sent to New York City, where the film would gross $1.1 million from 96 theaters, in addition to 60000 each from 10 screens in Kansas City and from 8 in Minneapolis. It would be the first time American cinema releasing would hit the big cities first. Yet, despite these rather sizable grosses out of Los Angeles and New York City, the film would only end up grossing about $8 million. Most of the reviews for the film were awful, but there would be a small group of critics who found things to admire about the film, despite all its flaws. Chuck Norris knew when he had a good thing going. After the success of Good Guys Wear Black and A Force of One, he would team with American cinema a third time in two years. That third film, The Octagon, would be a somewhat departure from the previous two films. After a $1.1 million budget for Good Guys Wear Black and a $2.5 million budget for A Force of One, the budget for The Octagon would be a whopping $4 million. Shooting wouldn't be limited to locations in Southern California either. In addition to Los Angeles, the film would also do location shooting in New Orleans, Mexico, and in Central America. And unlike the other two movies, which were rated PG, the Octagon would be a bit more violent and a bit more bloody, and would eventually secure an R rating. Eric Carson, the director of Dirt, would make his dramatic narrative debut here, with Norris playing Scott James, a retired karate champion, who was drawn into an international conspiracy that requires him to take out a group of ninja terrorists who have been trained by, wait for it, his Japanese half-brother. Joining Norris this time around are Lee Van Cleef from For a Few Dollars More and The Good and the Bad and the Ugly, Canadian actor Art Hindle from The Brood and Black Christmas, comedian Jack Carter, and in early roles, Ernie Hudson and Tracy Walter. The main set of the Octagon was built just outside the Magic Mountain theme park in Valencia, California, where the rock band Kiss fought the Phantom of the Park, at a cost of $300,000. Although the set was rather elaborate and built on land owned by American cinema, and could have been used over and over again in other productions, not unlike the White House set that Rob Reiner had built for his 1995 film The American President, 
which would be used for a number of film and television shows for years after. Director Carson had the screenwriter specifically write the destruction of the Octagon set into the script so that no other production could use it and rush itself into theaters before his film could be released. Not that he would have too much to worry about. The film would shoot between December 1979 and February 1980, and American cinema would have the film in theaters six months later. The film would open on 244 screens in Dallas, Kansas City, and St. Louis on August 8, 1980, where it would gross an impressive $1.5 million. The following weekend, it would add another 37 screens in Chicago, where it would gross more than $550,000, including a mind-blowing $135,000 from just one theater, the 2,400-seat State Lake Theater. But instead of waiting until the following spring to open in New York or Los Angeles, as they had done with Good Guys Wear Black and A Force of One, American cinema got the octagon into those major markets one week after the Chicago opening. Although they would get the film into 23 theaters in Los Angeles and gross an impressive $340,000, the distributor opted to only open the film in two theaters in New York City, the 978-seat Cinerama Theater and the 450-seat RKO 86th Street. Combined, these two theaters would gross $91,000, including $64,000 at the Cinerama, which would set a three-day house record. Within eight weeks, the film would have already grossed more than $18.5 million, according to an ad in Variety in mid-October, for the MyFed film market, and it would become an even bigger hit for Norris and the company, racking up nearly $25 million in ticket sales when it was played out by Christmas. A fabulous 79 is springboarding into a bigger and better 80, that ad touted, and it wasn't that big a humble brag. They were having a good year, despite having only released two movies the entire year. The next film, however, would change the direction of the company forever. Vernon Zimmerman's Fade to Black would be American cinema's first movie that they did not produce or develop themselves, and it would be the first movie that they would release as a traditional theatrical release. No four walls. They had high hopes for the film, as well they should have. It had one hell of a killer hook. Pun fully intended. Dennis Christopher, who had played the lead role in the surprise 1979 box office hit Breaking Away, stars as Eric Binford, a shy and lonely cinephile who, after a lifetime of being treated like crap by everyone he crosses paths with, snaps after he is unintentionally stood up on a date with Marilyn, a Monroe lookalike who has become the literal embodiment of Eric's cinematic desires. Eric decides to get revenge on those who have hurt him over the years, dressing up his characters from his favorite classic movies as he takes out those who have done him wrong. Tim Thomerson stars as a criminal psychologist who is investigating the murders. And Australian actress Linda Carriage, who really does look like Marilyn Monroe, plays the young woman who Eric becomes obsessed with. The film would also feature early roles for Mickey Rourke as one of Eric's tormentors, and future 30-something star Peter Horton. Film lovers should recognize a number of the movies that are lovingly paid homage to, from 1940 noirs like Kiss of Death and White Heat, 
1960 horror films like Psycho and The Night of the Living Dead, with a great ending at the famed Grauman's Chinese Theater. The film would open on 75 screens in New York City on October 17, 1980, and it would be the highest-grossing film in the city that weekend, with $700,000 in ticket sales. But in its second week, it would drop down to only four theaters in the city. Ironically, though, its per-screen average would go up from $9,000 to $14,000. When it opened on 43 screens in Los Angeles on Halloween Day, it would gross a decent $240,000. Ironically, one of the theaters would not be the Chinese theater, which factors into the movie, and was right across the street from American cinema's new offices, which they had moved into over the summer. The following week, 37 screens in Chicago, four in San Francisco, and a pair in Washington, D.C., would bring in another $279,000. But these would be the highs for the $1.8 million movie. By the time the film was played out around Christmas, the film would gross a decent $8 million, but since only about half of that was coming back to the company in rental fees, they would end up losing money on a release for the first time. And things would not get better for the company. Shortly after the release of The Octagon, Chuck Norris would inform Michael Leone that although he greatly appreciated the opportunities they afforded him, Norris was going to be making his next movie, An Eye for an Eye, for another production company. Norris would continue to see his star rise through movies like Silent Rage for Columbia Pictures, Forced Vengeance for MGM, and Lone Wolf McQuaid for Orion. By 1983, Norris would sign a long-term contract with Canon Films. His films with Canon were crappy, jingoistic junk, but they were cheap to make, they traveled well around the globe, and they would make Norris and the Go-Go Boys rich. And despite his contract with Canon, Norris was still free to make movies elsewhere, and he would go on to make his single best movie, 1985's Code of Silence, for Orion Pictures. Michael Leone was gobsmacked by this revelation. He was expecting Norris to keep making movies with American cinema, and he was using that leverage with distributors around the world to start planning more ambitious projects with higher budgets and bigger international stars. The first of these projects was Charlie Chan and the Curse of the Dragon Queen. Inspired by the novels of Earl Dare Biggers, Charlie Chan and the Curse of the Dragon Queen was the latest installment in the prolific Charlie Chan film franchise, of which there were no less than 44 movies produced between 1931 and 1949. One of the big problems with the series was that although most of the supporting cast was Asian, Chan himself would always be played by a white man in yellow face with a horribly exaggerated Asianish accent, often throwing out what one writer examining the movie series would call quote-unquote nuggets of fortune cookie Confucius wisdom. In fact, after 1949's Sky Dragon, Charlie Chan hadn't appeared on movie screens until this new movie, 33 years later. But if Jerry Sherlock the very white Charlie Chan fan who considered himself an expert on quote-unquote the Orient was aware that Asian Americans perceived Chan as a yellow Uncle Tom, a character who for them symbolized hurtful stereotypes they had struggled for decades to escape. He didn't give a damn. 
He would cast the very white, very British, two-time Academy Award-winning actor Peter Ustinov as Chan. To say the global Asian community, as well as Asians in the entertainment industry, were deeply hurt and upset about this casting news would be an understatement. Shooting would begin in Los Angeles and San Francisco in early May 1980, and protests would follow the production every single day it was shooting away from a controlled studio setting. Several major set pieces scheduled to be shot in San Francisco's Chinatown had to be canceled because of the protests, and the film would end up finishing production two days earlier than originally scheduled because of these cuts. As the film got closer to its scheduled February 13, 1981 release, the protests heated up again. The film would have its world premiere at the Pacific Hollywood Theater on Hollywood Boulevard on February 12th, and more than 50 protesters from a group called Can Charlie Chan were there to protest. Four television stations in the Bay Area would refuse to air any commercials for the movie, which would have brought in more than $50,000 of revenue, or about $163,000 in 2022 dollars. The plot of the film finds Chan, now retired from detective work, coming out of retirement at the request of the San Francisco Police Department to help solve a series of murders in the city. Richard Hatch, fresh off of Battlestar Galactica, plays Chan's grandson, Lee Chan Jr., with support from Oscar winner Lee Grant, Angie Dickinson, Brian Keith, Roddy McDowell, and in only her third film appearance, Michelle Pfeiffer. The reviews for the film, outside of a mixed review from Vincent Canby of the New York Times, were rightfully brutal. Hopelessly unfunny and uninspired, said the Los Angeles Times, falls upon every cliché ever thought of, said Variety. And The Hollywood Reporter declared the film to be, quote, utterly devoid of charm, style, or humor, unquote. Siskel and Ebert would agree it was one of the worst films of the year. The movie would open on 51 screens in New York City and 14 in Los Angeles, and the opening weekend grosses were $375,000, or roughly half of what Fade to Black had opened to a few months earlier. And American cinema would have trouble booking it in more than a handful of theaters across the rest of the nation. The $15 million film would be completely gone from theaters before the end of March, with less than $2 million worth of ticket sales. The company's next hopes were pinned to entertainer Mac Davis. It's hard to explain Mac Davis in 2022 to people who weren't around in the late 70s or early 80s. He was an amiable enough man who, after getting his start writing songs for Elvis Presley and Nancy Sinatra in the 60s, became a popular country singer in the early 1970s, which he was able to parlay into his own somewhat successful variety show on NBC that ran between 1974 and 1976. He was able to turn that gig into a leading role in the 1979 football-themed North Dallas 40 with Nick Nolte. When that movie became an unexpected hit, Davis would give this whole acting thing another shot, and the result would be cheaper to keep her. Davis plays William Decker, a newly divorced swinger, because remember, this is the early 1980s, who goes to work for an attorney as an investigator. He needs to track down and find divorced men 
who have reneged on their alimony and child support payments, with the money he earns from these assignments to cover his own alimony payments. The cast also includes Broadway star Tova Feldsha as the lawyer Decker works for, beloved comedic actors Jack Guilford and Rosemarie, and the great Ian McShane, still more than 20 years away from becoming a star from his starring role on Deadwood. Like Charlie Chan, the reviews for Cheaper to Keeper were downright vicious. Gene Siskel would vivisect the movie both in his Chicago Tribune review and on his sneak previews show with Roger Ebert. On the show, Siskel would name the movie his Dog of the Week, calling it a pathetic comedy with misleading advertising, while in his written review he would note the film was a cheaply made, sloppily photographed comedy that wasn't even on par with a few of the made-for-TV movies that he had seen. He would predict that the film would disappear from Chicago screens within a week. Although it wouldn't open in Chicago until March 27, 1981, he wouldn't be too far off the mark when the film opened in Los Angeles and San Francisco on March 13th. On 20 screens between the two California cities, the film would gross $37,500. The Chicago opening was better, $52,000 from 12 theaters, but it wouldn't be enough to save the film. After seven weeks, it would be pulled from release, with a gross of less than half a million dollars. Next up for American cinema was an action crime comedy called High Risk that actually featured actors you'd heard of, like James Brolin, Lindsay Wagner from The Bionic Woman, Cleavon Little from Blazing Saddles, James Coburn, and two Oscar winners in Ernest Borgnine and Anthony Quinn. That's actually a pretty darn good cast. In the film, four naive Americans in need of easy cash, played by Brolin, Little, Chuck Venera, and future X-Men star Bruce Davison, decide to fly to Columbia and raid the safe of a notorious drug lord, played by Coburn, with connections to the corrupt military regime. Wagner shows up about halfway through the movie as a woman they meet in a Colombian jail who ends up being helpful in escaping and Quinn shows up later as a local rebel leader. Writer-director Stuart Raffle, who had directed the mid-1970s hit The Adventures of the Wilderness Family and would go on to direct two of the most notoriously bad movies of the 80s and 90s, Mac and Me and Tammy and the T-Rex, says he got the idea to make High Risk after he had been hired to make a documentary about people in Spanish prisons who had been imprisoned for smuggling hash out of Morocco only to find out while he was editing the footage together that those who had financed the documentary were actually drug runners who wanted to find out how these people were able to smuggle hash out of North Africa before they got caught. The movie would shoot in Mexico and Nicaragua during the spring of 1980, and American cinema would pick up the distribution rights later in the fall, setting a release for the early summer 1981 season. High Risk would open on 27 screens in four markets, including eight in Los Angeles on May 29, 1981, where it would gross a not-bad $149,000. It would be the second-highest opener that weekend behind John Waters' Polyester, but overall it would open in 17th place nationwide. It would hang on for a few more weeks in smaller markets, but it was clear that after the film opened on 33 screens in New York City on June 26th, 
and grossed about $125,000, less than a three-movie Bruce Lee mini-festival that had opened on a third fewer screens, that high risk was not going to be high reward for the company. The film would be gone from theaters before the end of July, with less than a million dollars in ticket sales. Which is kind of a shame because it wasn't that bad a film, and several critics echoed that sentiment. Janet Maslin of the New York Times would find the film unusual, but surprisingly decent while praising the casting. Sheila Benson of the Los Angeles Times would note it was a far cut above the usual action-adventure film, and Gene Siskel, in his review for the Chicago Tribune, would call the movie a pleasant surprise. The next American cinema film for 1981 was planned as their fourth movie with Chuck Norris, but when Norris decided to try his fortunes elsewhere, Michael Leone went looking for his next Chuck Norris, and he would find it in Joe Lewis. Like Chuck Norris, Joe Lewis discovered martial arts while in the military in the 1960s. Like Chuck Norris, Joe Lewis had become a champion on the karate tournament circuit. And, according to Hong Kong cinema historian Bay Logan, Joe Lewis was Bruce Lee's first choice to play the villain in The Way of the Dragon, the role that would give Chuck Norris his first major motion picture exposure. When Leone came knocking on Lewis's door in 1980, Lewis had seen what American cinema did for Chuck Norris and was ready to have that for himself. Force 5 has Lewis as, shockingly I know, a martial arts expert who assembles a team of fellow martial artists to rescue a senator's daughter from an island ruled by the evil leader of a fanatical religious cult. If you think that sounds more than a bit like the plot for the 1976 Jim Kelly martial arts movie Hot Potato, you wouldn't be wrong. Joining Kelly on the adventure were several other martial arts stars, including Richard Norton and Benny Urquides, and a young actress making her first major motion picture, Amanda Weiss, who would later find fame as Lisa in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and Tina in A Nightmare on Elm Street. Like many of their films, American cinema would rush Force 5 through production and post-production in order to get the film into theaters as quickly as possible. But there was extra incentive to get the film into theaters pretty quick. Avco Embassy, the mini-major distributor who had purchased the rights to release Chuck Norris's An Eye for an Eye, had scheduled that film to be released in mid-August. And wouldn't it be a feather in American cinema's cap if their Chuck Norris replacement could gross more than the new Chuck Norris film? Let me ask you this, dear listener. How do you think that all turned out? The $3 million Force 5 went into production on January 26, 1981, and had finished shooting before the end of February, and was ready to be released before the end of May. Leone would set a release date of June 26th, a full seven weeks before the new Chuck Norris film. His movie would open on 52 screens in Indianapolis, Minneapolis, and St. Louis with a gross of $402,000. Not bad, considering other new movie choices at the time included the new James Bond movie, For Your Eyes Only, The Great Muppet Caper, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Stripes, and Superman 2. The following week, the film would open on 73 screens in New York City, and the gross would be, for just that one region, a healthy $445,000. 
After three weeks, the film would have grossed an impressive $1.2 million from just those four markets. And when the film opened in Los Angeles on July 31st, the city's mayor, Tom Bradley, declared a martial arts day in recognition of the movie's opening in town, noting in his speech that most American martial arts movies were being filmed in Los Angeles. If only mayoral proclamations could have helped the bookings. Force 5 would only open on six screens in Los Angeles, but it would gross a decent $42,000. By the time the Chuck Norris movie and Eye for an Eye opened in theaters in mid-August, Force 5 was mostly played out around the nation with a gross of just under $3 million. The Chuck Norris movie would gross $9.5 million. Not as much as his movies with American cinema, but more than triple what the movie that almost starred him grossed with his replacement. Now, longtime listeners of the show know that when I do these episodes about a specific distributor, at some point, the proverbial other shoe is going to drop, and we're now here at that part. Which is actually a bit surprising, since American cinema had several relative hit films, and the films that did miss outside of Charlie Chan didn't bomb as badly or as often as other companies who found themselves filing for bankruptcy. They had only released a dozen movies at this point, so what happened? The company was trying to grow itself, and one of the best ways for an independent distributor to grow is to release a steady stream of films. If an exhibitor like Man or United Artists or General Cinema can rely on your company to keep providing movies for them to play, they'll give you better deals and better placements because they can count on you. And to do that, you need a lot of capital. Capital to make the movies, capital to release the movies, and capital to acquire movies to keep your pipeline filled. In the spring of 1981, as they were going into production on three of what hopefully would be the next wave of successful films, Michael Leone would go to the Bankers Trust Company, a lender in New York City, who specialized in big loans to companies and corporations to borrow more than $10 million to keep the American cinema machine moving along. But as the company kept not recouping production costs on the films they did finance and not recouping the acquisition costs of the films they purchased, Leone would need to borrow more money as a stopgap in the hopes that the next film would be the hit that got him back on track. In the late 1970s, a show that is now colloquially known as a jukebox musical opened on Broadway. That would become a smash hit. Beatlemania had no story. It was just four guys on a stage who kind of looked like and kind of sounded like John, Paul, George, and Ringo, especially from the balconies, playing the music of the Beatles. Not the Beatles, ads for the show would tout, but an incredible simulation. Love for the band hadn't died off several years after the band broke up, and for many people, this would be the closest they would ever get to seeing the Beatles play live. The show would play more than a thousand shows on Broadway between May 1977 and October 1979, and its success would surely mean that a filmed version would someday open in theaters. That film version would be shot in the fall of 1980, completed just weeks before John Lennon was brutally murdered. American cinema, hoping there would be a resurgence in Beatlemania after Lennon's murder, would overbid every other distributor in order to secure the theatrical distribution rights. 
and they would schedule the film for release beginning August 7, 1981. Two weeks before that release, American Cinema would borrow another $8 million from Bankers Trust in order to finance the prints and advertising for that film, and its planned next wave of expansions on High Risk and Force 5, and a deal to acquire the movie rights to the Martin Cruz Smith best-selling book, Gorky Park. The company would book Beatlemania into 54 theaters in New York City, including the famed Ziegfeld Theater. But despite a fairly sizable media buy, New Yorkers were either not over Lennon's death yet, or despised the thought of a not-the-Beatles movie coming out less than eight months after his death, and they would pretty much ignore the movie. The box office tally would be less than $100,000, and after it was clear that the numbers would not get any better over the remainder of the week, Bankers Trust would seize the company on Friday, August 14th, literally minutes before Leone was going to have a contract-signing press ceremony in the American Cinema's office with producers Howard W. Koch Jr. and Gene Kirkwood to announce the Gorky Park deal. There were three movies in various stages of production or post-production that Bankers Trust would become owners of due to their seizure of American cinema. I, the Jury was an adaptation of one of crime novelist Mickey Spillane's Mike Hammer mystery novels that was written by and was going to be directed by cult filmmaker Larry Cohen. At $7 million, this was going to be Cohen's most expensive film to date and would have featured his biggest name cast date, including Armand Asante, Barbara Carrera, Alan King, Jeffrey Lewis, and Paul Sorvino. Production would begin in New York City on April 22, 1981, in the hopes of shooting the film before an expected Directors Guild strike could possibly shut down production in June. But after five days of production, American Cinema would fire Cohen, claiming he was already one day over schedule and $100,000 over budget. Cohen felt he was fired because he was promised $7 million to make the movie, but American Cinema only gave the producers $5.5 million, and he made his feelings about being shortchanged known to the powers that be. The company would bring Richard T. Heffron, whose credits included Future World, the 1976 sequel to Michael Crichton's 1973 hit Westworld, and the 1977 Peter Fonda film Outlaw Blues, in to complete the film. Ironically, American cinema would have to pay Cohen an additional half million dollars in order to acquire certain rights Cohen still owned for the rights to adapt the book and two others into movies, and the final film would cost American cinema more than $11 million. The Entity was an adaptation of the 1978 Frank DeFolita horror novel, which had originally been optioned by Universal Studios for director Roman Polanski before selling the rights to American cinema in 1980. Sidney J. Fury, whose credits included the Diana Ross movie Lady Sings the Blues and The Boys in Company C, was hired to direct the film, and a planned shoot in Europe and the Middle East was scheduled for late 1980. Barbara Hershey would be cast in the lead role of Carla, a single mother in Los Angeles who is violently raped by an invisible assailant at the opening of the story, only 10 days before the film began production. Based on the real-life story of Doris Bither, a mother in Culver City, California, who claimed in 1974 that she was being continually assaulted by a poltergeist, 
The $9 million film would shoot in Los Angeles, sometimes just blocks from where Bither claims to have been attacked, between March and June of 1981. Tough Enough was an original screenplay about a down-on-his-luck country singer in Fort Worth, Texas, who enters a tough man competition to help pay the bills, only to find surprising success in the ring. 27-year-old Dennis Quaid would be cast in his first leading role as the singer-turned-fighter, and his supporting cast would include Stan Shaw, Warren Oates, Pam Greer, and Wilford Brimley. The $5 million film would shoot in Dallas and New York City between April and June of 1981. The film would be written by Michael Leone's brother, John Leone, who had also written and directed the 1978 Henry Fonda movie, The Great Smoky Roadblock. John Leone had also started Tough Enough as the director, but he would be dismissed after the first week of production, when the first dailies reached the Hollywood offices of American cinema. His brother and fellow producer, Andrew Pfeiffer, agreed that, despite the family connection, they needed to move quickly to save the production. They would bring in Richard Fleischer, whose 30-year directing career at that point had included such films as Fantastic Voyage, Dr. Doolittle, and Soylent Green, would jump right into the production after only five days, but many of the actors, including Quaid and Oates, openly protested the firing of John Leone as director as well as the arrival of an unidentified person who turned out to be a non-union writer hired to help Fleischer reshape the movie. While John Leone had been fired as the director, he wasn't exactly banned from the set. He couldn't be present for any of the rewrites at the time because as a member of the Writers Guild, he could not participate in any rewrites because the Guild was on strike while the movie was in production. In December 1981, once Bankers Trust had time to figure everything out with American Cinema's finances, they discovered the company had more than a thousand creditors who were owed $57 million in debt, while the company only had about $4 million in theater rentals still due back to them. In order to get some of their money back, Bankers Trust would sell the rights to the already-released American cinema films to Roger Corman's New World Pictures and make a separate deal to sell the three completed but unreleased movies, I, The Jury, The Entity, and Tough Enough, to 20th Century Fox for an undisclosed amount. Fox would first release I, The Jury into theaters on Friday, October 8, 1982. United Film Distribution would also choose this date to release Q, The Winged Serpent, into theaters, the film that Larry Cohen came up with in a week to make after he had been fired off of I, the Jury. I, the Jury would grow slightly more than $1.5 million in its brief national theatrical run, while Q would gross more than that from just 100 theaters in New York City after three weeks. The Entity would be released in March 1983, under a stream of protests from women's rights groups who deemed the film offensive due to its graphic depictions of sexual assault. Barbara Hershey would tell a reporter around the time of the release that she resented being put in a position of defending the film. We worked really hard not to make it exploitive, she would say. Rape is one of the ugliest, if not the ugliest thing that can happen to someone. It's murder of a sort and I have no answer for those people who are offended. 
The protest probably helped the film a bit, as it would gross $3.6 million in its opening weekend from 1,031 theaters, on its way to a $13.27 million final gross. Tough Enough would hit theaters in March 1983, and Dennis Quaid would have to wait a while longer to become a movie star. The film would only gross $725,000 in its opening weekend from 538 theaters, and it would disappear shortly thereafter with a final gross of $2.4 million. After the demise of American cinema, Michael Leone was done with the movie business, although the movie business wasn't necessarily done with him. In 1996, Chuck Norris would sue Leone and what was left of American cinema for $100,000 in unpaid income that Norris says he was still due from Good Guys Wear Black which a Los Angeles Superior Court ruled was due to Norris in 1987 during the company's bankruptcy hearings. And Michael Leone would pass away in his home in Del Mar, California in 1997, three days shy of his 54th birthday. Thank you for joining us. We'll talk again in two weeks when episode 76, this podcast is rated PG-13, is released. Remember to visit this episode's page on our website at filmjerk.com for extra materials about the movies we've covered on this episode. The 80s Movie Podcast has been researched, written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens for idiosyncratic entertainment. Thank you again. Good night.